I had to buy it like under the counter at this <laughs> skate shop in a really dodgy mall because it was actually banned from Singapore. It was illegal. It was illegal. And don't tell anyone. Sure. I'm Nick Harcourt. Welcome to another episode of the Sound of Success podcast, where we talk with movers and shakers in the financial and tech worlds about music. On this episode, we welcome Priya Dewan, who wears a few very cool hats. She's VP in South Korea and Southeast Asia at The Orchard, a technology-driven leader in music distribution and an artist and label services company. And she's also the founder of Gig Life Asia and Gig Life Pro. We actually, I think, were first introduced a few years ago when we came across each other when you were the label manager for Warp Records, right? Fantastic Absolutely. record label. Yeah. So first of all, thanks for, for coming on the on the podcast. But before we start talking about music, let's talk a little bit about what's going on with you. I know you're in Singapore. That's where you're based. And you've got a couple of things going on. Maybe you could tell us just very quickly about what The Orchard is for the folks who don't know. And then talk about Gig Life, because I took a look online and I've got a bit of an idea of what you're doing. It looks fantastic. Maybe you can just share Thank a little you. bit with uh, with us for, for both of those, uh, those those things that you're involved with. Absolutely. Thanks, Nick. It's so nice to be reconnected with you. I was so happy to, to get that email. Yes, yeah, so The Orchard is the one of the leading distribution um, networks and services in the world. And I handled Southeast Asia and South Korea, as you mentioned. I actually started working with them in 2011 as one of their first employees in Asia as their director of Asia to help strategize their future and their path in the markets. The global platforms were starting to enter the markets at the time. And very cleverly, they decided that they also needed to have a presence in these markets. Since then, we have a whole team led by another colleague of mine to run Japan and a whole another separate team to run Greater China, leaving me to manage Southeast Asia and South Korea. Got it. And my role at The Orchard has been to make sure that we have great reach in these markets because there are a lot of local digital service providers across the region. And historically, they have never really needed to have deals with independent distributors. But as we see the world becoming more global and people mm. accessing music from every genre and every level of development, it's really exciting that all of our content is available across all of these local platforms. Understood. How was last year for you guys? Obviously, the world changed and more and more people went online, presuming more listening of the artists who are on the orchard. Yes, absolutely. You know, as you mentioned, we're a tech-driven company, and that served us really well during times like these. The other thing is I've been involved with sort of conversations around new technology which have been really exciting. Everything from obviously blockchain-driven products to metaverses and virtual idols and you know, synchronization has gone way beyond getting your music placed in a video game. Asia is also very tech forward. So it's been exciting to be in these markets during this time for that purpose. I'm sure. And, and you're perfectly positioned, obviously, in Singapore there as well, I, I, I would imagine. Tell us a little bit about Gig Life, Gig Life Asia and Gig Life Pro. Yeah. So when I moved back to Singapore, I actually left the recorded business behind for a minute and came here to set up my booking agency, Feedback Asia. 
And through feedback, I exclusively represented artists like Flying Lotus, Beach House, Yuna, Simeon Mobile Disco for touring across Asia. Mm. So I went like head first, dove in, traveled all over the region, met as many promoters as I could, attended as many concerts of my friends as I could in festivals, and really built out this very robust network in the live sector across the region. And Gig Life Asia came about because I was going to all of these festivals and events, and it's essentially a music tourism site. So, you know, I would be posting on my socials from a music festival in, in Hong Kong or, and my friends would be like, oh my gosh, I didn't know about this, you know, or I want to go there with you. Where do I stay? Yeah. What do I do? Yeah. What do I eat? How do I get tickets? The how do I get tickets part is actually really relevant because in Eastern Asia, they were catering very much for the domestic market, even though they were bringing in international artists. Mm -hmm. So when I, I went to a festival in Taipei, for example, I was leaving the hotel and I realized I didn't know where the festival was. So I started Googling it and I couldn't find anything in English. Oh, I literally man. had to yeah, call yeah, yeah. the promoter. Yeah. I called the promoter from the taxi and I was like, uh, can you please tell my driver where this, where this festival is? Yeah. And, and you and spotted an idea right there. I did. But you know what's so interesting? So did the entire e-tourism world, <laughs> okay. which is, as I realized quite a huge industry and backed by quite a lot of money. And I'm not really a B2C kind of person. Got it. So very interestingly, I was um, at Festival Bali. So Festival held a festival in Bali, Indonesia, and wow. it's a gorgeous festival. And I actually hired a publicist in Australia to help me sell these packages into the Australian market. Understood, because um, Bali is a very, very big uh, tourist destination for Australians. Absolutely. It's a two-hour flight from Perth. Um, yeah. Really, really close. And um, my publicist, who I hired from Australia, actually attended the festival with me. And we were chatting at the festival. And she suggested, you know, who would really appreciate packages like this, Priya, is music industry. They would love to attend festivals across Asia and have it all put together in like a really seamless package and also to network with local music industry professionals. And basically out of that conversation, Gig Life Pro emerged. And what Gig Life Pro is, is essentially a platform for music industry from anywhere in the world who are interested in doing more business across Asia Pacific to learn about the various ways to reach your audience across these markets, everything from top streaming platforms per location, um, top media, venues, service providers, studios. We also have all of these events uh, that you can attend through there. We create our own events. We used to do mixers and uh, networking events at music festivals and conferences all across the region. Up until about a year and a half ago, right? Yes. Actually, <laughs> literally up until about a year and a half ago. I actually had to leave Manila early at the beginning of March last year because mm. my colleague there informed me that the entire country was about to shut down. So, so let me ask you, because, I mean, this all sounds fabulous. And as somebody who is, you know, I guess I'm in the music industry still, somebody who, who still <laughs> likes to travel and go see things in, in different places... If, for example, I wanted to go to Big Sound, which is mm -hmm. an event in uh, Brisbane, Australia, where I actually lived many years ago, back in the 80s, 
And I have been there. Uh, it started off as a, an industry thing, but has been grown grown into quite a big, uh, a very important festival for for Australia for sure. What does Gig Life Pro uh, offer me if I want to uh, figure out how to go there and, and get to that or any other uh, festival? Yeah, so we kind of remove like the tourism element out of it, um, out of the Gig Life Asia concept for Gig Life Pro. But what we do instead, and pre-pandemic, we had actually been speaking to Big Sound about partnering with them to host a Gig Life Pro networking event Hmm. um, where we would invite uh, 10 industry professionals from, you know, Southeast Asia or East Asia, across Asia to come and attend the event and prepare them with what they need to have ready to network with the Australian music community. Because Nick, I think when you come from the Western music industry, a concept like networking is incredibly commonplace. And, you know, when I was in New York, um, in my days at Warp Records, I was actually on the board of A2IM and I used to speak at, at South by at CMJ. And I felt like we had almost weekly opportunities to gather with music industry professionals and in a casual setting. Right. And, and that doesn't really exist here. That concept doesn't really exist here. And it was shocking to me how fractured the industry was in Asia, even for example, within the live sector in a certain market like Thailand, the EDM promoters don't know the indie rock promoters, don't know the tech house promoters, so don't know the local promoters. So it's very fragmented. Very, very fragmented. And what I wanted to do, like two things with Gig Life Pro, one is to bring all of these communities together. And then secondly is to educate the next generation of industry professionals, because that's also something that we're lacking across Asia, you know, this whole career in entertainment is still very new and it's still <laughs> everybody's a still making it up for yeah, some of our, yes. <laughs> and also for some of our, our elder generations to quite understand and wrap their heads around. Oh, like, absolutely. What yes. do you do exactly? <laughs> yes. So you party all day? <laughs> <laughs> no, we Not were. Quite. Sure. Yeah. So, so that's, that's really what gig life pro is about. So moving forward, obviously, I, I would imagine a lot of things got put on hold, but things are beginning to open up in the West. What's it like in your neck of the woods? And how is Gig Life Pro going to reintroduce themselves? So actually, we have been thriving during this pandemic, um, mostly because we have a platform. We have an online platform. So, you know, we used to be able to do about one mixer a quarter offline, approximately, and maybe one or two trade missions of taking industry professionals to different festivals and conferences. Since the pandemic, we have been hosting weekly online happy hours Mm. and monthly Real Talk webinars. BYOB, yeah. We've built out this whole platform (laughs) where people can just connect directly and get all this information directly. The platform was something that I, I had wanted to make this whole time. But, you know, when you're able to run around in the real world, Things like that just kind of get pushed back. So me being forced to be in one place accelerated this. Good pivot. Yes. Good pivot, Priya. Congratulations. That's amazing. Thank you. I was speaking to a couple of folks last month about this, and we're kind of thinking back to the beginning of the year where Asia actually seemed like they had things under control. You know, 
places like Taiwan and, and Vietnam, like yeah. Taiwan was hosting these, you know, 30,000 capacity indoor arena shows and 150,000 capacity festivals. Like it felt Insane. like they were just on a different planet. Yeah. Right? Like there was no COVID. And even my, no COVID, my friends in Taipei were like, it's like, it's, it doesn't exist here. Like life is just so normal. The only not normal thing is not having any tourists, right? Because right. that's something we're really used to across yeah. these markets. Yeah. And then like a few months later, it's like a complete 180. Like we were, we were like, oh my gosh, APAC is going to be the first that opens up to touring. This is so mm. exciting. This is our time. And then now it's like, oh gosh, what just happened? And the answer is vaccinations happened. Yeah. Right. So the, the unfortunate thing is that it seems like, especially in these markets, the countries that had the cases under control are the ones who have the worst vaccination strategy and are potentially going to be the ones that open latest. Yeah, I mean, this is this is happening in Europe as well. Obviously, we're seeing we're very fortunate uh, here in the States. I mean, everything was handled very badly until the vaccinations got distributed. And then they actually yeah. got a plan together. And, you know, half the country is now double vaxxed and it makes a difference. And then you look at Huge. some of the countries in Europe as well, who, again, you know, thought they'd got it under control after the first or second wave. And they're yeah. only 20 percent vaccinated and cases are rising. So, yeah. That's a whole other arena. But, yes. Uh, at, at some point, hopefully, we're going to be able to see uh, live music and festivals uh, in the not too distant future. And obviously, here in the States, there's a whole ton of them getting ready to, yeah. to come later this year. Uh, in, enough about business. Great. You know, we've had a couple of conversations with people on uh, the sound of success, but I, I feel like you're really somebody who is uh, surrounded by music. You're somebody who lives your life in music as well. So I'm really interested yeah. to see how you do with these questions. So let's start off like a little pop quiz here. Um, <laughs> what's it? It's all easy. What, what's your first musical memory? Whatever that might have been, hearing something in a car or music around the house, what's the first thing that you remember as standing out to you as a kid? It was like, wow, I like that. So I have an older sister who's about seven years older than I am. And she loved pop music. And she loved to sing and perform. And I loved to do it with her. And I remember she would take the cassettes of her favorite songs, right? From like Tiffany or Wham or all the fabulous 80s hits. Yeah. And I would sit there with her and we would transcribe the lyrics together. I feel like I have to ask why. So that we could sing along with them. Okay, right. You know, we couldn't Google the lyrics back then. Write them down <laughs> so you could sing along to them. Got it. Yeah, so it'd be like very, very tedious, you know, play one sentence, pause. Rewind, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then like... And we would do this for like hundreds of songs. And it was such a great way to really, really connect with the music and connect with the lyrics because you're paying such close attention to it. And I think also like, I don't know if it's karaoke is in our blood in Asia, but you know, it's something that when Laserdisc came out when I was in, in middle school, I insisted on getting a Laserdisc machine and my favorite disc to karaoke to was Madonna's Immaculate Collection. <laughs> yeah. So my early music days were, were very heavily influenced by 80s pop music. 
80s pop music absolutely and nothing wrong with any of those references not at all way. what was what was your first album record cd or whatever it might have been cassette that you bought with your own money so i grew up in singapore and singapore was more conservative in the 90s than it is today and it this was pre high speed internet like i'm talking dial up days right so there is no music discovery or music sharing on the internet at that point so my music exposure was really limited to us and uk pop that i could hear on the radio and that didn't really speak too much to me and luckily i went to the american school and my friends used to go home for the summers and for christmas and they would bring back cooler music like nirvana yeah. and pearl jam and get me interested in in alternative music which i didn't even know how to describe it back then right yeah and the first record the first cd i bought for myself was marilyn manson's anarchist superstar and i had to buy it like under the counter at this skate shop in a really dodgy mall because it was actually banned from Singapore. It was illegal. It was illegal and don't tell anyone. Sure. <laughs> was was that part of the attraction by the way? Oh my gosh. It it <laughs> I loved it. I mean, I used to spend hours rollerblading around the island with the beautiful people on repeat. And I really I was like I just don't understand why this is banned. And you know, we didn't get the visual elements, right? So I didn't see like music videos or I didn't see, you know, I was like this is just really really great music, you know. I can't see the forest full of trees. That's <laughs> fascinating though if you think about it because obviously culturally you're living somewhere where you're just hearing the music yeah. just barely obviously because it's illegal. So you're you're hearing the music but you have no idea of all the imagery that's going along with this stuff. So yeah. so so when did you find out about the imagery that went along with this stuff? We might be jumping forward here and then jumping back, but uh, there's a big difference um, between listening to it and actually seeing what he was up to. It wasn't, it wasn't until a few years later, and I'm going to tell you, I was surprised. I was surprised. I was a very, very innocent, <laughs> innocent, innocent kid, you know? Like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. I mean, that said, I, I still continued to listen to it, and I remember going to... to see shows like that like a couple of my friends in high school were goths so they were the ones to really introduce this content to me and you know like 9 inch nails and a perfect circle and and i love that as much as i loved my 80s as much as i loved my 90s like love ballads <laughs> i used to listen to on the way home from right. the bars in high school um i think because i didn't have an opportunity to really discover music and explore all of these different genres on my own or platforms to do so i was so heavily influenced by my friends at the time and it gave me such great exposure to so many different genres of music and appreciation to so many different genres of music what was your first concert and and i guess i'm sort of bearing in mind now that in singapore growing up there probably weren't a lot of bands coming through that you might have wanted to see I'm guessing. So ironically, my first concert was in middle school in Singapore and it was Pearl Jam. Oh wow, okay. Yeah, you know, like despite living halfway around the world and I'm never going to forget it because it was my friend Kim who just moved from 
somewhere in the middle of nowhere in the US. And I loved going to her house because in her pantry, I felt like Alice in Wonderland. I think they had like shipped a container of stuff from, from Costco. And I had never seen a Costco before. <laughs> so I was like, why is this box of cereal so gigantic? You know? <laughs> I just love going over there. It was just, you know, like a, a whole Disneyland place. And we were in middle school and her sister, her older sister, who was, I think, a senior in high school at the time, was our chaperone. And it was thrilling and exhilarating. And it also got interrupted like three or four times. We had like police there from Malaysia. We had borrowed police from Malaysia to make sure that like nothing got out of hand. The event organizers had to interrupt the concert three times to get people to sit down. Even though it was Pearl Jam, I think it was very different from anybody else's first Pearl Jam concert experience. You know, I, I, I only saw Pearl Jam live once and uh, it was in New York. And all I can say is, I have no idea how somebody could be stopping Pearl Jam from playing in the middle. Know, of it, right. it seems absolutely nuts, but you know, right. a different audience, obviously I'm, I, I'm imagining you guys were happy with whatever you could get. Oh yeah. Especially in middle school. I mean, just yeah. be generally happy with any experiences you can get at that point. But Singapore as a whole was just like in high school, I remember the first indie concert that we had was a double billing of, of Coldplay and Travis. Mm, it's a good <laughs> and, one. Yeah. And that was, you know, when, when Yellow was the hit single. So Massive. it was still when they were emerging. But that was shocking to us. Like we never thought that, that Travis and Coldplay would come to Singapore. You know, Japan got all the fun shows. But <laughs> us over here could just wait wait for Sting and nothing wrong with Sting. <laughs> I actually went to that concert and it was awesome. But <laughs> yeah, I get it. But more mainstream acts. Coming yes, yes. Well, clearly there was a promoter in Singapore who made it worth their while to, to swing by. So that must have been yeah, fun. Yeah, it was. Let me ask you um, about the music that you love for dancing. I think this is a good one for you. Obviously, uh, you worked for Warp, not necessarily a dance label, but an electronic label with some dance artists on there. What do you listen to when you want to dance? What artists do you turn to when you when you want to move your feet and your body a little bit? You know, to be honest, if it's dancing to get ready to go out, it's full on 80s classics. You know, like I always revert back to my 80s classics, to my Tiffany's, to my Madonna's, my Cindy Lauper's, like Boppy, let's go, girl power in a weird way. But if it's just like dancing around my room, I've been really, really into Asian hip hop and Korean hip hop in particular. There's a great playlist on Spotify called K Hip Hop Plus A2, um, which is Plus A2 is the area code of Korea. <laughs> Got it. I've guessed. And yeah, I love the DPR Collective, Wavy, Cold. It's just between K Hip Hop, R&B, Rap. They've just got a really good thing going over there. Right on. No, I'm going to have to check that out now. I actually went yeah. through Korea very briefly about 10 years ago on my way to China for a conference, strangely oh, nice. enough. <laughs> um, I didn't get the chance to uh, to really delve into the music, but I, but I did gather from just my brief trip um, how much 
there is out there, how much music there is out there, let alone how many people and the size of the markets and everything, but also how different it really, really is from from the Western culture in the way that music is consumed, produced, et cetera, et cetera. Let me ask you about uh, perhaps when you're feeling a little melancholy or if the day's been a bit of a bummer, you just want to sort of listen to something lyrics connect with something what do you if what do you feel like listening to in those in in those moods you know when I'm feeling melancholic if it's not like 90s ballads that I used to listen to and like taxi rides on the radio home when I from the bars after my crush hooked up with somebody else and (laughs) just like uh must you play sadder music which funnily enough is still the music that you hear in taxi cabs in Singapore (laughs) it's like the same radio station when it's not that, when it's just more like contemplative, I really go back to that IDM warp days, you know, like Boards of Canada is, is such great music to put in, put in your head to, to really reflect. And I, even when I'm like walking around the cities, having like Giogatti in my, in pumping into my, my head kind of takes me out from the physical world. And I feel like almost like I can watch myself walking and analyze myself and and kind of removes me from the pressures that I'm in in the real world. What was the, this is not on the on the, the question list, so it's, it's an extra one that's just for you. But I was just <laughs> thinking about obviously your time running a, a, a record label. What was your favorite artist um, on, on Warp? I can't do that. No. <laughs> I can't play favorites. I give it a go. Come on, you don't work there you anymore. Can't play favorites. They're all my children, you know, and I'm in, still in touch with a lot of them. You know, Grizzly Bear. And I had a special connection with Grizzly Bear because um, we, yeah, I love them. And and I was really there for the full initial part of their career. You know, like I was very very involved with setting up all their in stores and setting up all their promos like with you for Morning Becomes Eclectic. And and I was physically present for a lot of that stuff and on the road with them. And, you know, we became friends. And and actually after I moved back to Singapore, I actually met up with them at a festival in Taiwan, like purposely met up with them at a festival in Taiwan and and hung out with them. And, and, you know, they came to Singapore and I took them out. And then the other one, because I have to name three, I can't, I can't pick one. Sorry. <laughs> the other one that's sort of similar is Battles. I, I hit the road with Battles as well. And we became friends, good friends over time. I've seen them in this part of the world. I actually booked shows for them in Asia when I first started my agency. And, great band. And we're great band, great people. And then the other one is Flylo. You know, similar thing was really there for the beginning of of his career. And while while I was label manager, Cosmogramma was released and they actually hired me back. His management hired me back as a consultant after I left Warp to help set up Until the Quiet Comes. Because you and, knew the band so well, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I stayed and, and lived with his manager, Dom, for like three months in Silver Lake, um, flying back and forth from Singapore. I was like, you know, I moved halfway around the world to set up an entirely different business, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and actually to that, I, I toured with Flylo uh, in Singapore and China and India. And wow. he met the Dalai Lama in India at our hotel. Well, that must have been an amazing experience for him meeting the Dalai Lama. Yes. But what about you getting to 
travel and go to all those fabulous places. Obviously, it's a part of the world you know, but nonetheless. It was cool. so fabulous to show that to them. Like, it took me years to get Steve to come out to Asia. And then the minute he did, he was like, I want to come back here. This is incredible. No. That's exactly how I felt. I haven't, I haven't figured it out yet, but uh, at some point. <laughs> Let me ask you this. So you listen to a lot of music like, like myself, and I have to think that you've at times heard something and thought that's going to be massive or that artist is going to blow up, and they didn't, right? Can, yeah. Can you think of any artist, a favorite artist, that perhaps never quite uh, I don't want to say made it because define made it. Yeah. But quite sort of, you know, uh, went up as high as you thought they were going to. Yeah. You know, I, it happened a bit at Warp, to be honest, because, you know, I think like our, our head of A&R, Stephen, is just so talented at what he does. And as a label, we tend to be quite conservative. Right. And when you're trying to push more pop leaning content, you can't really be conservative, right? You've got to kind of go all out and you've got to put big budgets behind it because pop media costs money to reach. Yeah, you've right? got to spend. You've got to speculate to accumulate. You've got to spend, yeah. exactly. And so the one that I felt most strongly about this was The Hundred in the Hands. Like, I just really believe that they belonged in mainstream pop culture. So talented. The music was just so pop but eclectic but but I thought so consumable and you look at like now like the vocals of like Olivia Rodrigo for example and that's sort of how I felt about it is like she she belonged on that stage let's not even focus on that artist why do you think it doesn't happen for some people when they seem to have everything that you need because you know as I spend more time understanding how pop music works. Honestly, the work I do with K-pop that's now infiltrated the mainstream pop world, I've kind of gotten re-educated and not just re-educated, like there's a whole world that I was not aware of working at Warp. I got a glimpse into it with Grizzly Bear, mm. but us getting into the top 10 in Billboard with Grizzly Bear was not because we threw a ton of money at it. That was a very organic, like grassroots, indie-driven accomplishment. And what I've realized is that it is actually a huge investment, you know, on the radio, the commercial radio side, the PR side, you know, physically going and, and appearing at and performing at all of these promotional events that you don't get paid, but obviously costs a lot to do. It is a very large investment. So I feel like when people are really trying to go for that pop sensibility and mainstream pop media they need to have the backing behind it to really get the traction like and it couldn't be more true with us radio so are you, are you saying that essentially if you don't got the money to launch a campaign then you're probably going into it with one arm tied behind your back unfortunately i would say so you know it yeah. really depends because obviously like we're in a different day and age where things can go viral without very much money, et cetera. You know, like you look at like Little Nas X and artists like that, but then how do they go into the mainstream? They get signed by a major who puts a lot of money behind them to get them into the radio, to get them into TV. Like that part of it costs money. It doesn't matter yeah. who you are. As somebody who's worked in radio for a long time and, and seen how the, the marketplace has shifted and how people 
decide what they're going to prioritize to try and break. My world's a little different. I've worked in non-commercial radio, as you know, for the last 22 years. Yeah. But at the same time, even though radio is perhaps not breaking bands anymore, it's still is the medium that will take a band or an artist to the top, right? So top 40 yeah. radio in the States, obviously. Non-commercial radio, it's a small part of it. And you can launch something in that yeah. world. But for it to really cross over, it's got to get on mainstream uh, television and, and, and radio. Absolutely. and But the beauty is now, unlike, you know, during the hundred in the hands time, is that you can have a hugely successful career without any of that. But if you want to be part of mainstream pop culture, that is a must. Right? Yeah, exactly. And it goes back to the question, which was, you know, define, make it, you know, define what that is. Yeah, yeah. you can have a living without having all of that stuff. A fantastic living and a great reach and a huge career and sell out even stadiums without it, right? Um, so I'm not saying that you have to have that money to be successful, but if you want to be pop successful and mainstream market successful, you need that money. And back in the day, you couldn't even be financially successful with pop music the way you can today without playing that game. Like today you can make pop music and you look at artists like Love and Max and they're making pop music, but they're not fully catering to the mainstream pop media and they have very successful careers, right? But it, a few years ago, like 10, 10, 12 years ago, that wasn't as possible as it is today. Exactly. You know, I, I remember having a conversation uh, and I realized we're going on a little bit. I'll get to the last couple of questions <laughs> in a minute, but, I, but it's so much fun talking to you. I had a conversation a couple of years ago with a guy who runs a major record label. and I don't need to say who it was, but my conversation went something like this. So if I'm an independent artist and I've got a fa fabulous fan base and I'm selling music at my gigs and people are streaming my stuff and I can get a couple of syncs and I can tour on my own, why do I need you? And he said, mm -hmm. because I can pick up the phone and swing 100 people behind your project if I decide to in any territory in the world, if I want to do that. And that's the difference between mm -hmm. the machine and the man and, and doing it independently as best as you can. And I guess at the end of the day, you have to decide, what do I want? Absolutely. I think it re really is what do you want? And the beautiful thing is that there are so many platforms now for artists to reach new audiences, to monetize their fan bases, whether it's platforms like Patreon um, or fan engagement platforms, like the Koreans are, are smashing it right now with monetizing fandoms. Like Weverse is a really great example of that, right? Where um, you're, you've got content, you're engaging with the artist and you're also buying a bunch of stuff, whether it's tickets to virtual shows, merchandise, mm. music. It's basically, you're able to monetize transactions in a way, but also make them more real, right? Like- Well, more direct, right? More direct and more meaningful to yeah. the fan, to the point where they don't, you know, it's not like you're taking advantage of, right? Like it's like a mutually beneficial environment, basically. Understood. Yeah. And I think we're going to be seeing more of that in the West as well. I'm, I'm sure that's coming. Um, yeah. What's a recent discovery that you'd like to share with us? An artist or an album that is floating your boat right now? So actually, there's an artist that I, a collective that I signed called DPR, 
it's short for Dream Perfect Regime from Korea. And they're really a, a unique label, especially for the market, where they have different members of the collective who specialize in their own like area of creative expertise. So you've got Live, who is like the vocalist rapper. You got Ian, who is the visual designer and does music videos for like top K-pop artists. Um, you've got Rain, the strategist, the the creative director, and it's quite a cool sharing of responsibility. This year, DPR Ian, who is the video guy, put out his own record, and it's called Mito M I T O. Um, and it's incredible. It like so, so if blew I, if us I all away. looking for that, what, what do I look for? So you look for DPR, Ian, I-A-N. That's the artist And name. Yep. And it's mood swings in this order. Right. And short is M-I-T-O. And you're, and you're clearly big in this. Oh, my gosh. I've been listening to that on repeat. It's got so many good singles. It's so good that I've gotten phone calls from the majors oh, wow. knocking at the door oh, <laughs> yeah. but it's amazing because he creates music videos for k-pop his music videos are phenomenal and he of has course. like three of them which is also rare right like as indie artists to have like high budget looking incredible music videos so you can look at scaredy cat um and nerves and no blueberries are the three singles from that album and they all have incredible music videos I just found it with a quick Google. And when we get done later on, I'm going to Great. take a look. Hopefully people listening to and, us as well. And actually he's got this, in, we put out this CD because we do that now. We still do that. <laughs> we do a lot of that actually. You um, put out this CD. It's so cool. It's a digipack. And if you put light next to it, it goes from black to white, wherever the flame hits. And it, it'll go back to black after a while. And when you open it, um, on the left side is a shattered mirror. And they literally had somebody, they paid somebody to crack each one individually. Wow. And so they're all unique. So every CD is different. Love that. Yeah. I, I remember, um, remember the Ting Tings? Yes, yes, of course. When, when, they, when they first started out, they would play concerts and they had seven-inch singles and they would put the cardboard of the seven-inch singles on the walls for every concert and ask people to draw on them. And then ah. they would sell those at the next gig. Very smart. It really is, you know? And, like, I think this whole thing with, like, packaging and CDs and, and merch now is, like, in, in this in NFTs, right? In this world of like not owning anything and just subscribing to everything. I think we're starting to see now people wanting to own things again. Well, in the same way that people want experiences where people can actually, you know, feel like they're a part of something. And I think that is going to come back in such a big way in the next couple of years. And we were just beginning to see that before the pandemic. People want to connect, even if it's just giving somebody an individual disc or album or you know notebook or whatever it might be yeah so um do you have a guilty pleasure a, a musical guilty pleasure obviously i don't want to know about your private life but do you have do you have a a guilty pleasure Very something personal, that you, <laughs> <laughs> sorry something that you sort of uh you know you listen to at home on your own i would say this would have to be 
Taylor Swift. I have been a fan of hers very quietly, especially working at companies like Warp Records for from the beginning <laughs> of her career. And then honestly, after I watched that documentary that she put out, I became an even bigger fan of hers. Incredible, think, uh, incredible work ethic. Yeah, I think for anybody who hasn't seen that documentary, you really should. I, I didn't have any interest either way. Do you know what I mean? I was like, yeah, yeah Taylor Swift, big pop star, whatever. I, I had no sort of impressions either way. And then I watched that documentary and I was like, oh my God, this woman is amazing. Right? Yeah. And such strong passion and, and perseverance from such a young age and talent, obviously. Lots yeah, of yeah, talent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's it, Taylor Swift. Nothing, nothing else. No, no other sort of thing you're hiding under. I mean, I mean, uh, I, I'll, I'll tell you mine. I'll tell you mine. I think yeah, might, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I yeah. might have given it to somebody else before, but I grew up in Birmingham in the Midlands, obviously, as, as mm -hmm. you know. And uh, Duran Duran, man, they're, they're my hometown, hometown boys. Uh, but how <laughs> is that a guilty pleasure, though? That should be just a pleasure. That should be a completely, completely acceptable pleasure. <laughs> I, I, I guess so. I mean, may, may, maybe it should be. But, you know, it's, you, you know how it is with, with, with artists who become huge stars. Yeah. They're cool at the beginning and then everybody loves them. And then they're not cool anymore until maybe 20 or 30 years later. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, they have always been cool in Singapore. All right. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, talk, talking of Taylor, I, I see that she's um, on a couple of tracks on this um, this new release that um, uh, Red Machine are putting out. The the guys that she was working with uh, on on her yeah. last couple of albums, the, they've got a record coming out, and she's on a couple of those tracks. I can't wait. Yeah, they're good. I've heard them. You'll like them. All right. So listen, uh, <laughs> we've just been talking for about forty minutes, and first of all, so much fun. Thank you. And as we sort of wrap these conversations up, I always like to just sort of check in with my guests and just say, how are you feeling right now? It's morning in Singapore, nighttime here in, uh, in LA. How are you feeling? I am feeling pumped. Thank you, Nick, so much. I would love to start every day like this to just like take a walk down memory lane yeah. and, and get really excited about first records, first concert experiences, my time at Warp, which those guys are like family to me. And it's so nice to have the opportunity to talk a little bit more about that. And I'm charged for the day. Bring it Great. on. <laughs> Go for it. What are you doing today? I'm actually taking my mom to a Japanese onsen for her birthday, for a little birthday lunch. <laughs> a Japanese what? Onsen. It's a hot bath. Oh, I didn't know that. So it's like yeah, a, yeah. They have like, like these basically. So they have all these like hot pools and cold pools and steam rooms and every oh, pool is infused with some other special, special water or salts or. Sounds fabulous. Yeah. I'm jealous. It's, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> have, a, have a fab day with your mom, Priya. And thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Thanks so Nick much, Nick. You've been listening to The Sound of Success. And our guest is Priya Duan. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Clay. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com.